Luke chapter 15, verses 14 through 24. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pig that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, This morning, um, we're going to be in Luke 15. Uh, The passage that was read to you, next week, Jerry will be preaching about the latter part of that passage, about the father's response to the son. Uh, This morning, what I'll be speaking to you about is the son's response, uh, the response of repentance. So uh, what is repentance? Uh, Simply put, repentance is to turn away from sin and to turn toward God, to turn away from sinful patterns in our lives and then to embrace God instead of those sins, to forsake those sins and embrace God. That's what repentance is. And um, the passage that we have before us, uh, Jesus had a reputation in Israel. Jesus was known to go about and eat supper with the riffraff of the Israelite society. The people that we would not necessarily want to associate with, the people that we should actually be ashamed to call our friends or so we would think. Jesus sought these types of people out to fellowship with them. Talking about prostitutes. In our society, we would say drug dealers. We would say people who have meth labs. Um, In Jesus' day, it was the traitors of his society. Those who were considered uh, as betraying their own countrymen. The, uh, the ones known as the tax collectors, the thieves. Just generally speaking, blanket term over top of these types of people was sinners. And Jesus ate supper with these types of people. There's another type of people in Israel. The religious leaders of that day, the pastors of that day, the, uh, the wealthy, the social elite of that day, who despised Jesus. And they were called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees disliked Jesus mainly because Jesus taught with an authority that was foreign to them. 
They did not understand this new kind of teaching, this new power that was given by means of the Spirit of God and not just by these rules and laws and regulations that had been laid down for centuries by other rabbis. Jesus taught with authority and it intimidated these Pharisees and they hated him for it. And so they would look for opportunities in Jesus' life to say, that's an example of why this man does not come from God. And one of the examples that they saw was this man eats and drinks with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. How could he possibly come from God? He should know better if he is the Messiah, the Son of God, some lofty rabbi. He should know that these are not the types of people. So Jesus hears this accusation, this hate-filled, snarling accusation, and he responds with three parables. The par- in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then our parable, the parable of the lost son. And the point of all of these parables, he says it a couple, two or three times throughout the passage, but just to read one of those verses, verse 7 is this. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The reason why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, the reason why he came to earth in the first place, and the reason why he is seeking you today is because Jesus delights, celebrates, rejoices when worthless people like you and me respond to his grace and love with, I repent and I return. I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me. And there is celebration in heaven. That's the point of these passages. So he gives a lost sheep. And and the point there is that If a shepherd has 99 sheep and one strays too close to the edge, will that one shepherd not run after that sheep, grab it, and bring it back to the 99? Just so, I'm going to run after those who are straying, my people. I'll go after them. Or the lost coin, a woman has 10 coins. She loses one of them. Would she not rip her house apart looking for this one coin? And then when she found it, call all of her friends and say, I found it. Thank you. Come rejoice with me. I found my coin. Would she not seek after it? Would she not rejoice when she found it? But then there's the lost son. And the interesting thing, before we dive in to the repentance that we see here, is this. We do not see in this passage the father doing what the shepherd or the woman did. Sure, he runs after him when he sees the son coming, but that's only after the son has already responded. So my question to you is, does God seek after rebellious people? Because the reality is, we are not sheep and we are not coins, are we? See, sheep and coins have no moral responsibility in being lost. One is just a foolish sheep and the other one is just misplaced. But a son or a daughter is rebellious, deliberate, intentional 
about leaving the Father. And every single one of us in this room, from the one we think to be the most righteous to the one that we all think should not be here, like Pharisees, every single one of us is rebellious. We, as the old hymn says, are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are types of people who love the things that God hates. That's what we are. We are this type of person. Will God seek after you in your rebellion? This passage is much closer to the reality of what we experience. In our experience, it is not often the case that we sense that Jesus is breaking through and coming right after us. Usually, what we experience are God-ordained circumstances in our lives that force us to evaluate our relationship with God. In this passage right here, it's very subtle, but it's very clear. The shepherds sought after the sheep, the woman sought after the coins, but what happens to the son? God sends a famine. He's lost all of his money, and now things are at their worst. Why? So that the son will finally come to the end of himself. And many in this room have experienced that very thing. And you're on the back end of this. You have repented, and you have experienced the delights, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that no discipline for the moment seems joyful but sorrowful, but those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God brings these circumstances into our life as a stopgap so that we'll say, wait a second, I don't have everything that I thought that I had. There is lack in my life, and I need to return to the Father. This is the way God has dealt with his people forever. In Hosea chapter 2, God pictures his people Israel as a, a wife to a husband that acts as a prostitute. She sleeps around with a lot of guys. And God, as her husband, continues to seek after her. He's unwilling to let her go. And in one particular passage in chapter 2, God says that I will put a hedge and build up a wall in her pathway so that whenever she's walking down that pathway to her lover's house, as she's intending on adultery, she'll hit that wall, she'll hit that hedge, she won't be able to get past it, and she'll say, in desperation, finally, well, it was better for me when I was with my father or with my husband, and she'll return. God does that for us. He hedges our path. He puts famines in our life so that we'll say, this is not everything I thought it was going to be. This is not good. It was better for me when I was with my father. And then, when we are in that place, we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our rope. We have nowhere else to turn. We turn back, and repentance is then what is needed. So question, how do we repent? And that's what this passage lays out for us. The ABCs of repentance. A, awareness. B, brokenness, and C, casting ourselves on the mercy of God. Awareness, brokenness, casting 
A, B, C. Awareness of what? Repentance requires an awareness of the reality of our sin. An awareness of the reality of our sin. And what I do not mean by that is that it simply means that we need to be aware that we have sin. See, all of us already understand that. That's not any real huge accomplishment to look at yourself and say, yeah, there's sin right there. We know that. We're filled with it. We miss most of it, but we're aware of a lot of it. We have sin in our life. The awareness I'm talking about is the type of awareness where Jesus uses this type of word. The son does something very important in verse 17. Jesus' words are this. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I should perish here with hunger? He came to himself. You know, we use that type of language also. To come to yourself. To come to, 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 come to yourself means to have your rationality, your reason return to you. You'd been living in a fog of delusion and then all of a sudden, why was I so stupid? That's what it means to come to yourself. An awareness of the reality of your sin is an awareness that your sin is not merely a moral, moral failure, but it is irrationality. It is insanity. It is stupidity. Stupidity is what sin is. It is stupid. And I use that word very, very strongly. It's a strong word. It ought to be a strong word. Stupid to look at your creator and say, I do not need you. I can handle it on my own. I know what I want. I know what is good for me. It doesn't matter what you think is good for me. I'm going after this. So see ya. I want my inheritance. Doesn't matter to me whether you live or whether you die. I'm done with you. I'm going to a far off country. And there you loose live because that's better for me. I know what's good for me. I'm going to go after what I want. Irrationality, stupidity, insanity. And when we come to the end of ourselves, we realize there's nothing there. It's an empty well. It's dry at the bottom of it. It doesn't last. Repentance requires that type of an awareness that says, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Sin is to not be yourself. It's to be below what you were designed to be. It is subhuman to be in rebellion. You're designed to obey your creator. That's where vitality and thriving is, but sin rebels against the creator and makes you less than what you were designed to be. There's a passage in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, stands upon his palace and it really illustrates what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar is king of the most mighty nation in the world at that time. They'd conquered, they conquered, they were the largest nation in existence up to that time. Largest city, most beautiful, most secure. And Nebuchadnezzar stands on top of his palace, looks out over top of Babylon, and he sees the hanging gardens, which are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he sees all of the beautiful temples and, and homes and minarets and 
palaces and towers and he sees the mighty Euphrates that runs down the middle of the, of the city of Babylon and he sees the enormous walls that the Euphrates runs beneath that were eight stories tall and about five stories thick at their base. And at the top of them it was said by an ancient historian that chariots four wide could ride across the top of this, uh, of this wall of Babylon. Mighty city, enormous, beautiful powerful. And Nebuchadnezzar stands there as the king of this city and he says, look at this glorious city of Babylon that I have created by my might, by my power, and by my glory. And then in his pride as he's saying this, a voice comes from heaven and says, Nebuchadnezzar, your power and authority is removed from you this day. Your reason is taken. And from that day forward, For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was a madman. It's recorded in the book of Daniel that his fingernails grew out like talons and his hair grew out like fur or like feathers. And he let the dew of the morning fall down upon him and he began to graze in the field like a cow. He lived externally, physically, what his spirit had been all along an animal, subhuman. That's what pride is, to not live in submission to your creator, is to be like that, that illustration of the beast. And we use that same language ourselves when we see people in this type of mentality, do we not? If someone is wild and crazy and a party guy, what do you call them? They're an animal, right? If there's a man who runs around, sleeps around with a lot of girls, what are they? A dog. What about a liar, a cheat? What are they? A snake. This type of behavior is below what God has created you to be. You're created to be upright, a human created in the image of God, reflecting his glory. Sin is an opposite of that. Repentance requires that we come to ourselves, that we, for the first time, the fog lifts and we realize, I'm not created for this. It's like the fish which swims in the sea, looks up to the heavens and sees the birds flying and says to itself, that's what I want to be, a bird flying in the sky. I've got wings, my fins will do. My scales are just enough like feathers, I can do it. And then he jumps up out of the water, lands on the bank, and flops around until he dies because he's not designed that way. You are not designed to experience and seek fulfillment and fullness in all the lusts of this world. You're designed to experience the living God. And anything less than that is stupidity. you got to get there. For repentance, but then next, not just an awareness of our of the reality of our sin, but a brokenness in response to the awareness of that, a brokenness, a deep woundedness within that is truly and genuinely sorry over our sin. There are two types of sorrow that the Bible describes for us in Second Corinthians chapter seven. Paul describes worldly sorrow, and then he describes godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is merely a sorrow that is based off of consequence. You're upset that you got found out 
or that you're embarrassed by these, these things or it didn't pan out the way you thought it was going to be and you're sorry about that. Years ago, uh, my wife and I had supper with Philip and Lori Seeley. They used to, he used to be the pastor of Landis Presbyterian in Woodlawn. And as we were eating supper, their kids were with them, and Elizabeth, their daughter, she was about four years old at the time, didn't want to finish her supper. And Lori said, okay, that's fine, Elizabeth, but if you don't finish your supper, you can't have cookies after a while. And Elizabeth said, okay, I understand. And Lori said, you sure you understand that you will not have any cookies if you don't finish your supper? She said, yes. Well, time for the cookies to come out. I get some. Danielle gets some. Joshua, her brother, gets some. Philip, Lori, none for Elizabeth. And Elizabeth wails. Oh, it's so bad. I can't have any cookies. She's crying her eyes out, crawls up in her mom's lap, starts bawling on her shoulders because she's so upset over this situation. Now, Elizabeth didn't do any sin by not eating her supper. But the example of the, of the, the sadness, the sorrow she had felt in the consequences of her choices is exactly what a worldly sorrow is. It's a, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And then you pound your fists on the ground and you cry out and you, you have a tantrum sort of attitude. That's worldly sorrow. And Paul says it leads to death. It's worthless. It does nothing for repentance. But a godly sorrow, a godly sorrow is exactly what this prodigal son does. Let's read it. Verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. How does this son respond? He responds not with any sort of presumption that God or that his father owes him any mercy, but that he just comes with this humility. Will you please show me mercy? It's the same attitude we should have. We should have no presumption. You owe this to me, God. Did I not walk down the aisle when I was seven years old? No, we come with this humility that says, God, I have sinned. Will you forgive me? But beyond that, we see something remarkable that is necessary for this brokenness. And it is this here. When he confesses his sins, he says this. I have sinned against heaven and before you. When it uses that word heaven, that's a Hebrew way of saying God. They often would not use the word God, and so they would just say heaven. And so he's saying, Dad, first and foremost, I've sinned against God with this, and secondarily, I've sinned against you. That's what a brokenness is. A brokenness is a realization that your sin does not merely affect you. First and foremost, your sin hurts and wounds your loving creator. you got to feel broken over that sin for repentance to take place. Do we not realize that in our sin, our creator, our God, our Savior is involved in it? He died, was crucified for those sins. And when we persist in that rebellion and we trample his grace underfoot like it was dung, does he not experience afresh a reminder of the wounds of the cross and buckle beneath the stripes and feel that pain, that pain that is the result of that sin? How dare we not feel sorrow over that? 
Do we forget that our omnipresent God, our everywhere present God, that when we sin is with us in our sin, experiencing it, that the God who upholds all things by the word of his power, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, and in whom all things hold together, as Colossians chapter 1 says, that that same God is enabling us. It is because he is upholding you that you are able to do that sin. If he were to stop, you could not sin. This God is not some distant bystander. He is intimately involved. And for those of us who are believers, are we not indwelled by the Spirit of the living God? Does Ephesians not say, do not grieve the Spirit who is within you? When we persist in open rebellion, the Spirit of God weeps inside of us. For he hates sin. He despises it. It's what killed Christ. Will we persist in it willy-nilly or will we respond with a brokenness? This very morning, a brokenness. I didn't realize that it hurt God so deeply that I persist in sin. And then secondarily, out of that brokenness toward God, then we look at our brothers and we look at our sisters and we look at them and we say, I see that my sin has hurt you too. It has caused damage in my marriage. I have hurt my children with my sin. I have wounded my coworkers or my employees or my employers or whoever it might be, my next door neighbors, my cousins, because of my selfish pride, because of my lust, because of my anger, because of my whatever it might be. And then we go to them and say, please forgive me. That's the type of brokenness we're talking about here. But the joy of it is this. In all of this, this does not sound very positive. Brokenness, sorrow over sin. I thought this was supposed to be a joyful thing. Brokenness over sin is not like worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow has no hope, but godly sorrow looks toward God and sees intense hope there, which is exactly what this son does. We are aware of, our, of the reality of our sin. We're broken over that sin. And then thirdly, we cast ourselves after this brokenness on the mercies of our God, which is exactly what this prodigal son does. He knows that his father, he sits and thinks about it. Are his hired servants not just better off than I am out here? Is my dad not the type of dad who takes care of the lowest member on the totem pole, which is what the hired servant was? There were three levels in a household. There was the son, there was the slaves, and then there was the hired servants. The slaves were like the full-time employees. The hired servants were the guys who showed up on Monday morning and said, you got any work for me? And the man says, no, I don't. I'm sorry. You'll have to go elsewhere. And they go home. They don't have any work that they come Tuesday morning. You got any work for me? Yeah, I got some work for you. You can work today. Wednesday morning, no work for you. They're gone. That type of person is what the hired servant was. Here today, gone tomorrow. That type of person is the type of person that this father made sure was provided for. If that's the type of father that I have, will he not show me mercy too? So the son returns. Broken over his sin, he returns in confession. Father, I have sinned against God, against you, I am not worthy 
I'm not. If it was justice, speaking about ourselves here, you'd throw me into hell. If it was justice, it's hell. But I believe you to be a God of mercy. And so I come asking for mercy. That's the type, the type of God that we have. Not just a God who, yeah, you come to me, maybe I'll give you mercy. No. The type of God who eats with sinners so that they might just do this very thing. So they might look and say, I want to repent and return to you so that he can rejoice over top of you. Celebrate over the fact that one has returned. That's the type of God that we have, the type of Savior that we have, one who will die on your behalf. And so you come, you confess, and you have this assurance. 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our, unright- uh, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no qualifier You come, you confess, he forgives. That's what it takes to repent. An awareness, a brokenness, and then casting yourself because he is merciful. Casting yourself down upon this God. Trusting that forgiveness will come. Trusting that he will embrace you. As Jerry will talk about next week, trusting that he will run after you and embrace you. And cast a party on your behalf. What great love, as 1 John also says, that we should be called sons of God. And such we are if we have trusted in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who forgives us of all these sins, who forgives us of all these rebellions, who runs after us. So question, this morning, where are you? rebellious sinner who sits in a blue or tan seat in this auditorium. Where are you? Person on the podcast who might be listening to this. Is there a famine in your life? Is there a hedge in your path? And as I speak, you hear the word of God saying to you, pay attention, this is for you. I'm pleading with you, Repent, turn. As Hebrews says, if you hear the, today, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. Are these the words to you? Everyone in this room fits upon a spectrum. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. None of us are faultless in and of ourselves. All of us, to one level or another, are rebellious. Every last one of us. Some of that rebellion might be a little bit more socially acceptable, might be a little bit more subtle, might be a little bit more or less destructive, at least as we perceive it. Others of that rebellion might be more long-term, more deliberate, more a part of our very lifestyle. 
all of us along that spectrum are in need of repentance this very day, myself included. What is it that Christ is running after you about this day? Some have never in your life experienced the love of Christ toward you. You've heard Jerry talk about it. You've heard Josh talk about it. You've heard Adrian talk about it. You've heard Dave talk about it. You've heard others talk about it, myself this morning. But it has never been something that you yourself have experienced. And the word of God to you today is, repent, come to me. All who come to me, I will no wise cast out. There is not one sinner on planet earth who forsakes his sins and turns to God that I will reject. He will accept all who come to him. We must simply cast ourselves upon his mercy. Some of us in here hear these words and we are shaken to the foundations about these words. As a matter of fact, it frightens us because as we realize we're in need of repentance, we look at ourselves even in response to this sermon and we think, I want to repent, but I see no brokenness in my heart and I'm frightened by that. I see callousness. I see hardness. Then I say to you, brother or sister, do the same. Cast yourself on the mercy of God and cry out to him, Honestly, God, I am not broken. I plead with you, break me over my sin. Show me why you hate this sin. Make me feel about it like you feel about it. Give me your heart. Create in me, as David says in Psalm 51, a clean heart because I can't do it. Left to myself, I will not be upward. I will be downward. Change me, I plead with you. And I promise you, God answers such prayers. He delights to. That's why he sent his son in the first place. So my hope, oh my prayer, is that as the praise team comes out, as we have an invitation, that all of us, however it is that the Spirit of God is prompting you, will respond in kind as we need to to this sermon.